Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. You know, we always appreciate being a part of your day, particularly when things are moving like they are in the ag industry. On today's episode, we're going to continue some conversations that started this week at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters Convention down in Kansas City. We're going to check in with Dr. Megan Niederwerder of the Swine Health Information Center here in just a moment, looking at biosecurity on finishing operations. And then we're going to talk with Ryan Kelbrantz. He's the CHS Senior Commodity broker. We're going to talk about the markets and what's developing here, both internationally as we look at the weather down in Brazil and, of course, what continues to happen over between Russia and Ukraine, and domestically as we plan ahead for that 2023 growing season. We're also going to have a conversation with Dr. Matt Roberts. He's the lead grain and oil seeds economist with Terrain, a new think tank of sorts in the ag industry put together by leading farm credit associations. They're going to be researching all different aspects of agriculture. And Matt will join us here in segment three with an update on one of his most recent reports, ethanol versus electrons. What do EV vehicles mean for the ethanol industry. It's a topic I'm pretty passionate about. We'll pick his brain about that a little bit later on. We do have some more news in the animal health world. HPAI continues to spread. Coming up on the January 13th anniversary of the start of this current wave of infections. And that's got the animal ag industry concerned about biosecurity. That's what Dr. Megan Niederwerder has been focusing on. And Megan, you're pursuing a new research angle at Schick that wean to harvest biosecurity. What, what does that mean in practice? Yes, we formed this Wean to Harvest Biosecurity Research Program with the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, as well as the National Pork Checkoff. So we combined our three organizations to really leverage the funds that we had available for this topic, as well as to fund, of course, more research in, in more detail. This research program has really come about because of the vulnerabilities that we've identified in the Wean to Harvest phase biosecurity. And the reason that we saw that with was with some of our swine disease monitoring uh, programs, looking at uh, higher infection rates in the pigs in wean to harvest phases with PEDV, PERS virus, as well as actinobacillus pleuronemoniae. So what we saw with our rapid response team when they went out to investigate the actinobacillus pleuronemoniae outbreaks, we saw that oftentimes there was lateral transmission from one finisher site to the next finisher site. That was associated with some of the labor going from site to site, as well as associated with rendering transportation. Interesting. So it was just uh, perhaps an oversight on the farmer's level about this particular aspect of biosecurity. And that's where you're going to try to tighten things up a little bit. Absolutely. We've done a really good job on the sow breeding farm biosecurity over the last several years. And we see lower infection rates in that age group, as well as oftentimes pigs weaned negative for PEDV and PERS. Then when they get into the nursery and the grow finish phase, oftentimes they become infected in those phases, which really increases the disease pressure and the overall infectious disease risk for the whole industry. So we want to fill those gaps in biosecurity in the wean to harvest phase and really improve the overall health of all U.S. swine. So Megan, as you launch this initiative, as you prepare to better biosecure this other aspect of the hog production ecosystem, how is it going to be different than breeding stock? I mean, if we're so good at biosecurity on that side, don't we just take those best practices and apply them to a finishing barn? That's one of the aspects that we can consider, of course, translating all the protocols that we have on the breeding farms to the nursery and the grow finish. But oftentimes in those older aged pigs, the disease impact is less. And we have to think about cost-effective biosecurity protocols that not only consider the cost and return on investment for producers for each protocol that's put in place, 
What's the return on the reduced disease pressure in those older age animals? But we also have to consider the labor shortage. And oftentimes, biosecurity gaps are due to a shortage in labor personnel. So we really have to think outside the box, outside of our traditional biosecurity thinking, to utilize the labor that we do have in the most effective way, in the most biosecure way. And some of that may be developing more robotic tools and technologies, perhaps pen side diagnostic assays for uh, determining if a pen is appropriate, clean, appropriately cleaned and disinfected, thinking about how we can more um, time effectively load and unload pigs in a more biosecure manner, thinking about how can we design a new trailer that could be more biosecure just based on the engineering and the design of the trailer or thinking about design of the barn. So some of these may be um, tools, technologies that are more mechanical or design-based as opposed to protocols that personnel have to follow through for every day because we know the labor shortage is there and we have to think around that and how we can still be um, biosecure uh, in our pig production. That is a great point. The differences in the production practices between the two forms of, of pig production makes me think that you're going to have to look at some new topics when it comes to researching this wean-to-harvest biosecurity. Megan, what's next? Exactly. So the, the weeks of September and early October, we worked with two task forces made up of veterinarians and producers, researchers, and industry professionals to identify the, the top research priorities on both the site biosecurity, so at the farm level, at the nursery or the grow finish facility, and then also on the transport side, because we know that's a fairly specialized industry, thinking about not only live haul transport, but transport to market, transport for rendering. Um, and so thinking about the transport side and the site side, we've developed those research priorities that are um, included in the call for proposals. We released that in October. And now we are soliciting uh, research proposals to be submitted to the Swine Health Information Center. They are due on December 16th. And uh, those research proposals, we encourage anyone with a novel uh, idea or alternative tool technology that can help us answer these research priorities with implementable and cost-effective tools for the producers, uh, please submit a proposal. We want to consider as many proposals as possible. We will um, decide on funding early January of 2023. Those projects will start soon thereafter, and we anticipate those projects being between one to two years in duration. So, Megan, if we've got a listener here who perhaps is in the research space for hog health, where could they go for information on what specifically you need for these proposals? Yeah, the instructions and the template are on our website, swinehealth.org. We also have the call for proposals that specifically outlines in fairly detailed manner the research priorities. And so I encourage the listeners that are out there to go to those research priorities, consider how your research proposal fulfills those research priorities and make that really clear in the research proposal because those priorities were really designated as what we believe will provide the greatest return on investment to producers and the, the questions that we really want to try and investigate and answer through this program. That is fantastic. Folks, if you need more information, visit swinehealth.org for the details. We've been speaking here with Dr. Megan Niederwerder, Associate Director of that organization. Megan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA coming up right after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, what does channel have on offer that you're excited about? I am definitely excited about what we have throughout our whole entire portfolio. We've got, you know, the double pearls, which is above above ground protection. And we've got uh, smart stacks and the new smart stacks pro hybrids for the, the pesky uh, corn rootworms pressures that we're facing. So very excited. We've got everything that that uh, from from the early hybrids to late late hybrids that can cover droughty conditions and also, you know, the, the nice rainfall conditions as well. Overall, very nice portfolio. 
That was channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the Monthly Grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. You know, I apologize if you notice my voice sounds a little more hoarse today. The past three days of talking to friends and and, uh, connections at NAFB's convention down in Kansas City has has certainly taken its toll, but I'll tell you, there were some fantastic conversations developing down there. A lot of issues under concern here in the ag industry. Of course, given the volatility that we've seen in the markets, they really were kind of top of mind. For a lot of commentators and folks here as they were looking out and planning for next year. And we've got more market news coming at the end of the week. We are going to have the cattle on feed report coming out a little bit later on today. It is expected largely by analysts to continue the bullish outlook that's been developing here in the cattle complex. Now, this is going to be the first of many reports where we're looking ahead to lower on feed numbers. We saw this trend really kick off in October. We saw that break in supplies growing at feedlots and started to see it finally take a turn to the downside. Now, analyst expectations for the on-feed number, now remember, it's as of November 1st, so these these reports are always delayed. This data, as our friend Darren Newsom likes to mention, and he'll be on the show on Monday, the market is dealing with delayed data in these reports. It's likely already priced in, whatever these numbers might be, but this USDA cattle on-feed report will give us some confirmation. On feed is expected to come in at 98.3%. Now, the range of analyst guesses is from 978 to 99.1. 100% of analysts do expect this to be a smaller than year ago number. Now, placed in October, uh, we saw that 96.4 number and marketed in October. They are expecting to see that strong marketing pace continues, looking at 1008 percent of year-ago levels for that marketing number. Consumer demand out there at the grocery stores has continued to stay strong. We'll be digging into this cattle market a little bit more deeply next week once we've got these numbers from USDA to fully break down. The other massive concern that we have seen with regard to grain producers, livestock producers, anybody in the food retail business is, of course, 
inflation. How are consumers grappling with these higher prices? And are these higher prices going to continue to get higher in a vicious cycle? And all eyes are turning to the United States Federal Reserve for clues on how they are going to try to tackle this ongoing inflationary concern. Now, on Thursday, there were comments from the president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Now, his name is James Bullard, and he came out as, as we saw the inflation number tick down here at the start of November, there was excitement in the equity market. Markets, that perhaps this would be an indication that the Fed doesn't need to raise rates as much as we had been thinking. That gave the equity markets a little bit more room to run. We've seen the money flow pushing back into the stock market, and Fed President Bullard kind of put the brakes on that. He wanted to get everybody's attention, and he said he believes interest rates will need to rise to at least the five to five and a quarter percent level in order to curb inflation. Just a reminder, Chairman Jerome Powell has now said that he expects interest rates to climb up to that four and a half percent level. So Bullard's comments push it one to a little bit more than one full percentage point higher over Jerome, uh, Jerome Powell's expectations. And that has sort of put the market back on their back feet. They're looking, I should say they, traders in the equity markets in particular, are looking for an indication that perhaps the cost of money is going to stop climbing. And well, if... St. Louis Fed Chair Jerome, or excuse me, James Bullard is to be believed. It certainly looks like the cost of money is going to continue to accelerate. Now, there were a lot of market folks running around at NAFB getting connected, talking about these issues, and I had the chance to catch up with Ryan Kelbrantz. He's a CHS senior commodity broker, and we were talking about the volatility that was on display in the markets yesterday and what he expects as this goes out to the future. And he joins us now with an update. And Ryan, Thursday was a wild day in the markets. Was it all geopolitical news moving the uh, moving the prices? Very wild. Markets uh, just taking some big moves. We had an announcement from Russia continuing this grain export corridor being open for another 120 days. So markets are off there. Um, we're seeing big moves in energy prices, the U.S. dollar. We did have some announcements of export sales. The weekly export sales on beans came in at three, a little over 3 million metric tons. They were thinking on the high end of 1.7. So that uh, sales posted was the highest total of the marketing year, and China remains the leading buyer. They're buying over half. Wow. So China is still stepping big into the market. But Ryan, I'm hearing a lot of concerns about what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere. That Brazilian crop, those growers seem fired up to put a lot of acres in the ground. And it looks like the weather's favoring them right now. So far, so good. And then the forecast, looking out a little bit, looks like we're going to see a little bit of more moisture for the 11 to 15 day in Brazil and the major corn and bean areas. So that, uh, I think, is weighing on things as well, you know, we're going to keep a close eye on that moving forward, uh, Argentina and Brazil, and but I think we're looking so far at some pretty decent sized crops. Ryan, I'm I'm stunned. Just you mentioned that. The fact that China continues to be top of the list on soybean exports with this big crop coming out of Brazil, with the the move by Argentina earlier this year to flash sell so many of their, their soybean stockpiles, what does this tell you about China, that they're still aggressively buying in this elevated price situation? Yeah, I mean... We saw that today or yesterday the population on Earth broke 8 billion people, and that's going to continue to draw demand. We're seeing good demand here. I think they're getting covered, you know, for JFM. You know, why not? You know, if we do have a rail strike here, you know, hopefully not. Uh, they kicked the can down the road to early December, that cooling off period, and I th think that uh, they can come to some type of agreement moving forward. But I, th I don't see China stepping aside, you know. Okay. There's still going to be a player. There's still a hungry nation that needs food. Exactly. Ryan, I'm curious about what's developing here in the corn market. You mentioned we saw that grain deal with Ukraine and Russia extended 120 days. Obviously, that's moving the wheat market. We're seeing wheat or corn pulled down on Thursday as well. Is this just spillover selling, do you think? Is that wheat market uh, see some openings with that grain deal? Yeah, I think that that, that is a definite impact on price action what we're seeing here too and, and we're kind of building a, a sweet spot for corn is it going to be between 640 and seven dollars you know that front month it gets to seven dollars and tends to sell off a little bit and then go back down and then we have some buying that shoots it back up there so i think we're kind of building a range in for the short term 
Ryan, six forty to seven dollars. Not terrible pricing by any stretch of the imagination. Certainly on a historical perspective. What does that mean for acreage in twenty twenty three here in the United States? If we've got that same range developing in the the December twenty three corn market, what does that do for acres in your mind? That tells me you you you're going to plant corn. I've I've talked to a, cu- a couple or a number of producers that they don't anticipate their rotations shifting too much. You know, okay. from where where they were this year. Um, you know, you're going to have to look at some seed sales and see where people are buying. You know, we're going to need some, definitely need some more bean acres moving forward um, to kind of feed those biodiesel plants. And then that's beneficial to the farmer because they, that demand will become, you know, not only export demand, but we're going to have some interior demand that will keep things going here too. And then do, does corn lose any acres or wheat or, you know, where does that come from? If we lose corn acres, that would be seen as supportive for the price as well. Yeah, I've got to imagine it absolutely would. On that soybean acreage front, Ryan, you mentioned the demand that's developing here for soybean oil, renewable biodiesel. Of course, that was a a major topic of conversation at the NAFB meeting. When do we see that demand trickle down to the farmer level? When does that soybean oil demand, this product demand, filter down to the farmer? Or are we there now? I would say part of it's being built in, in the deferred months. But uh, I think moving forward, I think... We see the demand continue to strengthen up. They're going to be, that's next fall, some of these people are coming online, and then into 2024, that'll that'll continue. Yeah, it's going to be incredible to see this develop. Exactly. How it all plays out is going to be a a different story. We'll see what happens moving forward. How it all plays out. You know, a crucial part of how this particular renewable biodiesel, biofuels movement plays out is what happens with the rest of the energy complex. Ryan, we saw crude oil take a little bit of a bath on Thursday. Where do you see this energy market going as we get through winter? You know, diesel's been trading at a pretty decent premium to gasoline We've seen crude oil trade between eighty and ninety dollars. I, I, you know, we're getting towards the low end of that range. Um, you know, COVID restrictions in China have kind of dampened demand a little bit here. We're going to have to see what happens there moving forward if they open things up a little bit or they become more restrictive for their citizens. They are the largest importer of energies in the world, so that's going to be a factor. Um, Seventy-five to ninety, I think, is a good place right now for crude oil. All right, 75 to 90. And at that point, do you think we see more production coming online? You know, production here in the United States has been pretty robust. We saw a rig count increase last week. The rig counts went up again. Um, that'll increase, you know, $75 plus is pretty profitable for a lot of people. All right, getting some more energy supplies out there to a hungry world that certainly needs it. Well, folks, we've been speaking with Ryan Kelbrands. He's a senior commodity analyst with CHS Hedging. Ryan, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Mike. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, Dr. Matt Roberts, lead economist for grain and oil seeds at Terrain, will join the show with a look at what's developing between ethanol and electric vehicles. Stay tuned for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. As a farmer, growing your business is more than just a nine-to-five. It's your life's work. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system goes all in to help you stay on top. Backed by decades of innovation, offering the latest trait technology and triple herbicide tolerance, plus more weed species controlled than any other soybean system. Because you mean business, and so do we. Learn more at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. The benchmark Refinitiv Core Commodity CRB Index is approaching its lowest level for the month of November today, led by key component crude oil, which is trading at its lowest number since September, right now right below the $80 per barrel mark. 
The Russian extension of the Black Sea grain export deal has calmed concerns there for now, while China is seeing a rise in COVID cases and is also looking to slow crude imports from some exporters. An overall economic slowdown, both domestically and globally, seems imminent as central banks increase rates to combat inflation. Now that's a fear for petroleum demand across the globe. U.S. oil demand remains strong with inventories tight, though, and that's after a larger-than-expected 5.4 million barrel draw reported from the DOE this week. Domestic production held steady this week, but output levels continue to run well short of record pre-pandemic levels, despite picking up slowly across most of the last two calendar years. The spot December corn contract is starting to edge toward the first notice day and expiration, but is still hanging on to a significant share along with the March contract of volume both within the corn complex and within the grains overall. Now, the 100-day moving average remains a baseline, lingering right near the psychological $6.50 bushel mark as well. Now, that's still better than the soybeans and wheat, which hit lows for the month and for the fall yesterday. And with that Black Sea grain export deal signed and winter settling in across the Midwest, we could be primed for a slow stretch of holiday trade heading into Thanksgiving shortened week next week. Fundamental grain market news is generally thin with row crops in the bin and the USDA done with production side updates until January. And U.S. equities have been a bit choppy this week, with Dow Jones futures pointing higher this morning, but only slightly so. Inflation data as of late has shown that we could be slowly starting to turn the corner on that front, but the Fed does appear to be loath to stop anywhere short of the rate target needed, willing to overdo increases and come back later if that's what it takes. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination. Our honesty our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Certainly appreciate you making time for us today. And my goodness, we are going to be talking about a very interesting subject in this next segment. We have been waiting in the, the ag industry, in particular the biofuels industry, has been waiting for November 30th to get the latest update on the renewable volume obligations from the EPA. We want to see how many gallons of biofuels fuels are going to be required to be blended into the nation's fuel supply for the next year and beyond. And there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not the EPA might lower those requirements as they continue to push towards electric vehicles. It doesn't sound like it's going to be the case this November, but it is a push we're seeing from the administration, and it's making the biofuels industry wonder, how does this shake out? Ethanol, biofuels versus electrification. Well, Dr. Matt Roberts, the lead economist for grain and oil seeds at Terrain, has written a report on that very subject. He joins us today to discuss it. Dr. Roberts, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Matt, before we jump into ethanol versus electrons, for listeners who might not be aware of what Terrain is, give us the elevator pitch. What are you guys doing in the ag industry? Terrain, so Terrain is a cooperation between three uh, leading farm credit associations, basically a group of economists and analysts put together to do practical and kind of useful research and analysis to help our, our farmer and rancher members just be more successful. Uh, we are all come from a broad industry or broad backgrounds, industry, academia, uh, government, banking, a lot of different backgrounds, retail. Uh, coming together to just put our heads together and see how how we can make in this crazy time uh, make people just do a little bit better. 
That's what it's all about. Improving things at the margin gets the industry better as a whole. And Matt, this was an interesting report. I know it's something you have been watching for quite some time. Your background is in the automobile business. So the ethanol, electrons, what was what did you find in your report? Is elect our electrical vehicles going to kill the biofuel industry? The short answer is no. And the longer answer is still no. What I found is there's a couple of factors that really lead me. I look at what does this look like from now to 2035? What's this look like from now to 2050? 2035 is when the California rules really kick in. And the impacts are going to be small. Is there going to be zero impact? No. But when we look at the laws as written now, uh, there's, they're not nearly as unfriendly as a lot of people think they are for liquid fuels and gasoline, and, and that, of course, means for ethanol, uh, they're not as unfriendly as people think. I think we're talking about a decline in corn demand of 1% to 3% 15 years out by that 2035 point. By 2050, we're talking about maybe a, a 6 7 8% decline in corn demand. So we're not talking about no impact. But when we talk about the scale of this and what led me to it, farmers coming and saying, my kid wants to take over my farm. Is this a good idea? I mean, we're going to lose a third of our corn demand with all the other challenges. It tells me those kinds of worries are overblown. This will be a very minor impact on how corn, how farming is going to do over the coming decades. All right, Matt. Well, that is, I think, a relief to a lot of folks in the biofuels industry. I'm curious about how you did this report. I want to look at the electrical vehicle industry first. We've got two pushes here, it seems. We've got the market push, some people just choosing to go out and buy an electrical vehicle for whatever reason they've got. And then there's a policy push. As you look out to 2035, is it policy, laws, and state action that's going to drive the EV business? Or is it is it market? Is it just folks moving into that space? Both are going to have an impact, but the bigger driver is going to be policy. When we see California, say, um, basically have their new advanced clean car to initiative, it says that by 2035, all vehicles sold in California have to be electrified. Now, that's not just battery electric. That can be a plug-in hybrid as well, but they have to be able to, to run at least for a period on electricity. And when California adopts a rule, there's another 14 states that align with California that in their own laws or rules have said, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to follow their lead. So that's about 40% of, of the new car market in the United States. That's going to be by far the biggest push. Will there be consumers choosing to buy it in states that don't have those sorts of mandates? Yes. But the focus of this report is, okay, what do those mandates, 40%, what are those really going to drive? And as you'd expect, these are, by the way, the, these 40% or 14, 15 states are primarily urban. They are the states with the largest urban population centers. And it's in those urban population centers that really electric vehicles are easiest to adopt. Um, it's much harder when you're in a rural area. It's much harder if you're a contractor. It's much harder if you're using your vehicle for actual work. So I think these, these um, minimums, these mandates are high enough. That's going to be by far the primary driver of electrification. And that's on the really policy focus on and analyzing. Okay. All right, Matt. And as this policy push continues to be driven, of course, we're hearing concerns about, about climate change, about fossil fuel usage, and, and it all kind of comes back to the idea of decarbonization, which of course is, is getting a lot of press this, uh, this time of year. That notion, the idea of removing carbon from the energy system, do you feel like that idea is here to stay? It's, it's entrenched in the policy positions here of leadership? It is. It is. Both sides of the aisle. I mean, while we, there are in the political process, certainly there are some people who are much more um, committed to much more aggressive policy direction. It's a very, very small contingent at this point of policymakers who just completely poo-poo it. It's going to be an organizing factor, and it, it realistically has been an organizing factor of policy um, in the United States. 
we look at even the renewable fuel standard that we talk about now uh, that you were just mentioning passed in 2007, one of the primary uh, criteria for differentiating the grades of renewable fuels in that is carbon intensity. So the role that carbon plays is going to, it's not going away, it's going to grow in regulation and that means it's going to matter more and more in how we operate and how we manage our operations. All right. So that focus on carbon, it certainly sounds like it is here to stay. And I'm I'm wondering, Matt, as you think about how this rolls out longer term, you looked out to 2035 and, of course, to 2050. And as there is a transition to electrical vehicles, uh, they're transitioning away from something, which means they've got a used vehicle to trade in, probably powered by an internal combustion engine. Is there any policy on the books or being talked about to get rid of used vehicles or, or are used vehicles going to be in the system for some time? Used vehicles are going to be in the system, and I think these pushes to electrification, this is one of the, the issues I really spend a lot of time on in this report. The role of used vehicles will continue actually to increase as we move into electrification. I've had farmers say, well, what, wow, are we gonna, how am I going to handle this with a, if I need a pickup truck with a 300-mile range that I pull a 10,000-pound or 4,000-pound trailer with? And I say, well, you're going to do it the same way you do it now. You're going to do it with a Chevy pickup or a Ford pickup. Um, but I can't buy them. No, you're going to be buying used vehicles. And we see that. I mean, there's analogs. If you uh, look at over-the-road trucking and kind of the pre um, uh, the pre-emissions sort of latest step up in emissions in over-the-road heavy-duty diesels. We see those being extended. We see the average age of passenger cars growing every year. It's now up to 13.1 years in the United States, and that's going to continue to grow if for no other reason electric vehicles are more expensive than their gas counterparts. So there's going to be a stronger incentive to stretch this out, uh, repair our older vehicles, keep them on the road, particularly for those of us who do drive for work or are used to, like so many Midwesterners, those classic Midwestern road trips. Um, want that, want to keep that. Yes, indeed. Remember lots of good times in the family station wagon on road trips when I was a kid. Matt, I'm curious about ethanol consumption, or I guess I guess ethanol's demand for corn. We saw in 2021 a huge boost in ethanol consumption around the country. We saw the percent of corn used for ethanol, as you note in your report, climb to levels that we haven't really seen since 2011-2012. Is this a sea change in ethanol support, or was this a one-year blip mainly from the, the higher energy prices? Much more the latter. Higher energy prices mean that ethanol becomes a much better, um, it's a nice substitute, particularly when we have all the supply chain disruptions. And this is one of the points that we've heard from the ethanol industry uh, really since its inception. Look, here is, here is a fuel that is completely made here. The supply chain is 100% here in the United States. And I think the last few years have really highlighted that importance. And even as, yes, we know we're talking 10%, 15% of the overall fuel supply, as we all know in commodities, 10 to 15% matters a lot. That little bit at the margin is really what sets price. So I don't think we're moving into an era of every year seeing 3 4 5% increases, stronger exports, all of these uh, that that kind of growth in ethanol demand, there are still some opportunities to grow ethanol, but I do think that was driven much more by high energy prices and by ethanol being able to finally show its value proposition that it is here, the supply chain is here, and it's standing here. All right. Love to see that proponent of U.S. biofuel keeping us moving. Folks, we've been talking with Dr. Matt Roberts of Terrain. You can read his report, Ethanol versus Electrons, at terrainag.com. Dr. Roberts, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Nice to talk to you. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to get a forecast update from Greg Solier, meteorologist of This Week in Agribusiness. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. 
Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to The Monthly Grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on The Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Joe Lardy, Market Intelligence and Insights Analyst with CHS Global Research about the November WASD report, just a few hours after it's been released, to get his initial thoughts. Joe, we're talking about this report as it is hot off the press. What are some of the main takeaways you've seen so far? Overall, I'd have to say the report came in pretty close to as expected. And all things considered, it wasn't a real shocker, which is really good. I don't think the market needs a big shocker right now. It came in relatively close to expectations. We did see, though, a bump in yields on both the corn side and the bean side, both uh, four-tenths of a bushel higher on both of those. But I think that did kind of follow the pattern of what we've been seeing as we got later and later into harvest, where the eastern side of the corn belt seemed to be doing better yield-wise, and that did get reflected in the WASDE report. Well, Joe, with all that being said, what should producers keep in mind as they make decisions here heading into winter? One thing they have to do is really stay in touch with these markets. Generally, as we get towards the latter part of the year, we see liquidity get a little to sometimes a lot thinner. And when that happens, these markets can really bounce around. And we have seen some really decent volatility in these markets. So, you know, prices are moving sharply higher, sharply lower. It kind of seems to be whichever way the wind is blowing sometimes. And we've also seen these markets react very strong what the outside markets are doing. So when we've seen a big move in the dollar or in the stock market, we've seen our markets either react positively or negatively to those changes. So I think producers have to be in touch with the markets. So if an opportunity comes along, they can capitalize on that. Folks, we've been talking with Joe Lardy, Market Intelligence and Insights Analyst with CHS Global Research. Joe, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. At Bravant, our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly 3 million times against the competition. How many? 3 million frickin' times. Hey, man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word. Take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds. It's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart.
Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Certainly appreciate being a part of your day, and I'm guessing for a lot of folks tuning into this show today, it's a cold one out there on your farm or ranch. We're seeing a big, widespread of cold weather across this country. Joining us now with an update on what is expected today and looking out through the weekend, meteorologist Greg Solier of This Week in Agribusiness joins us here. And Greg, how widespread is this cold here on Friday? Well, good morning, Mike. Nice to be with you. Yeah, it is uh, wide and far-reaching. You know, it wouldn't be too bad if it were December 18th or January 18th, but it's November. And uh, coming off of these spells of uh, earlier on this fall season, when we had these balmy, mild days, not great with dryness and drought in mind. But yeah, real shock root of the system. The cold air uh, is far south of sections of uh, uh, Mississippi this morning. We had a hard freeze all the way down towards uh, Hattiesburg. The single digits this morning are poised all the way to about the northwestern end of Kansas and a wind as well into play with this big widespread upper air low that's been pinwheeling itself across the upper Great Lakes region responsible for uh, some snowfall as well as far south as the Ohio Valley and of course prolific record setting by the foot multi-foot snows and some of those downwind favored locales of uh, Pennsylvania, New York and into uh, Michigan. So you pick your poison and whatever you tend to follow here and deal with with wintertime it is wide and far reaching. The only other areas of the country that are in fairly quiet shape, uh, well, that's across the western states, some air stagnation issues in the Pacific Northwest, and a couple of days worth of Santa Ana conditions in the Southern California. So some warm weather there, but windy weather there. And of course, so with the dryness and drought too, uh, sparking some fire potential in the Southwest and Southern California. So, uh, you know, no major storms per se, but boy, it is the feel of wintertime. A harsh morning underway with single digits covering a wide area of our listing audience here the teens uh, into the western corn belt but single digits from montana to minnesota south into northwestern parts of kansas greg you mentioned the reports of snowfall coming off the great lakes that lake affects snow across new york i understand michigan has gotten some of it is it it seems worse this year than we've seen in recent years is that because the lake temperatures are still so warm thanks that the, to that delayed fall yeah, yes, exactly. Lake water temperatures are about 45 to 50 degrees, and that's pretty balmy relative to the time of year. So you put this midwinter Arctic air on top of it and a westerly component and some lift, and you come up with one to two foot snows into southwest and western Michigan uh, into sections of the UP. But it's been a fetch of west-southwest winds that have been running from Lake Erie through Lake Ontario, and they all pile up in that eastern end of uh, Lake Ontario right on top of Buffalo. So yeah, that will be a, a real forecast fruition of four, five, six, seven feet in some of those favorite spots here between now and early next week. So yeah, a historic setup. Uh, that is big time snow and snow that uh, you know we deal with that with here in the Northern Plains, but not necessarily by four or five foot or six foot measurements. Yeah, that is a that is a lot of snow. That is a mountain of snow. But I know the folks in Buffalo and northern New York, they are used to it. But my goodness, that is a pile of snow. Greg, it looks like on the fork on the, the radar map here, other than that potential snowmaker up there across the Great Lakes, it's a fairly quiet day setting up across the country. Is that how you're reading things? Exactly. Yeah, just these passing snow showers and flurries into the Corn Belt, the Great Lakes region, yeah, a little mixed moisture into the southern plains states as well. Probably going to be looking at another chilly rain along uh, eastern Texas's uh, Gulf Coast and east from there in through Florida. Uh, they are so certainly in cleanup in recovery mode coming off uh, Nicole and Ian over the past few weeks, the hurricane season. So apart from that, in those downwind locales, it is a pretty quiet weather picture and really should stay that way as we get ready to move into next week and Thanksgiving week across the area. Really nothing major on the maps and charts other than that chilly rain over the southeastern states, maybe a little light rain snow mix coming out of the central and southern plains, central and southern corn belt, but uh, really nothing major from a travel standpoint within a couple of days, let's say, of the Dakotas, Kansas, and Nebraska. Now, Greg, with this big widespread cold snap with single digits, you know, 
just above zero temp digits, I imagine we are going to start freezing up this ground. Taking a look at the drought monitor right now, over the recent weeks, have we started to see much improvement there in the drought monitor? Not at all. Not as it applies to the northern and central plains. Uh, some improvement noted through sections of Wisconsin, the Arrowhead of Minnesota. That's been snowfall, but a wide area, roughly from the Red River to the Mississippi and then back west, uh, continues to be in a world of hurt, really centered on Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, and of course, through the western states. The only you know nominal, improved, or average soil moisture uh, scenario is through Wisconsin, western Michigan, parts of southwest Illinois, and sections of the eastern states uh, because of the tra track of tropical systems over the past couple of weeks. So yeah, 85, 88% of the nation in some sense of a categorical drought and likely to stay that way. We'll get some thawing of these grounds. And you know, if you want to fast forward now and think about wintertime and La Nina, Shoot, which should begin to weaken here, but not till mid to late winter time. And that usually keeps the winter weather pattern ramped up. Two areas of the country that will see improvement with snowfall in mind. There will be improvement through the Dakotas because of snowfall, parts of Montana, the Pacific Northwest. The second area expected to take aim is the uh, Corn Belt, especially the eastern Corn Belt down to the Ohio and eastern states. So there are indications that a fair amount of the plains of the western states will not see improvement nor come up with substantial uh, rain or snow this wintertime season based on the current estimates of La Nina. So, Greg, just to clarify that the Plains and West, even if La Nina were to moderate as we get later into January, February, they, you don't expect them to see much of an much of an improvement? That's right. Deb. Probably not till maybe very late winter, early spring before we get into the usual typical you know, scenario of moisture into that particular part of the country. It may come too late. We'll see what happens. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not very optimistic in getting any same thing winter style uh, or in the early springtime into an improved category for the central and southern plains, the southwestern states, and California. Pacific Northwest, big sky, the parts of the Dakotas, yes. Southwest Canadian Prairie, yes. Uh, Eastern Corn Belt, yes, and parts of the Ohio Valley. But the rest of the country centered on the central and southern plains may go into the uh, growing season, the start of fieldwork season, in none too fantastic shape regarding soil moisture, especially on the central and southern plains. All right, folks, that's Greg Solier, meteorologist on This Week in Agribusiness. He'll be providing his winter weather outlook on the December 3rd edition of the episode. Be sure to catch that. Greg, thank you for joining us today. A pleasure, my friend. And folks, tune in next time to AOA. We'll be talking with Darren Newsom. We'll break down the cattle on feed report from today, and we will also talk other aspects of agriculture that matter to you. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. At Bravant, our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly 3 million times against the competition. How many? 3 million frickin' times! Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word. Take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds. It's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head -head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone, because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. win. We, we, we are, are the, the Foundation, foundation Fighting Blindness. Together, 
We are Fighting Blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.